The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We have the privilege now to go to God's Word and actually talk about the theology of the cross and the practical application of the cross, so that song is very appropriate. So for those of you who have your Bibles and you want to follow along as we look to God's Word together, we have been going through the book of Titus uh, Phrase by phrase, paragraph by paragraph. So we are now in chapter 3. Last week we covered verses 1 and 2. Today we look at verses 3 to 7. And actually, verses 1 through 7 go together. So let me read those before we begin this sermon that I titled, Remember Your History and Destiny. And that your is talking about Christians, believers. If you're a Christian today, that's what it's talking about. Christian, remember your history and your destiny, spiritually speaking is the point of emphasis in this passage. And starting at verse 1 in chapter 3, it says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So today we're looking at verses 3 through 7, an incredibly rich passage, especially talking about salvation in Christ and what salvation means and how God accomplished it. Probably the most dense passage in all of the New Testament on it what God has accomplished for sinners in salvation through Jesus Christ. We can't really do justice to it in one sermon, but we can definitely scratch the surface and see what God might have for us in regard to this great truth. But by way of summary, we are in chapter 3. In chapter 1, simply the theme was good leaders in the church. And then chapter 2 was how to be a good church member. We looked at that, and now chapter 3 is about how to be a good citizen in the world. Good citizen in the world. And so that's our point of emphasis. So we looked at that, which was introduced last week, verses 1 and 2, where Titus says, remind them, remind, hey, Pastor Titus, Elder Titus, remind the Christians in your community that you're working with on the island of Crete as you build your church, uh, house churches and other churches and Talk to the people of God. Remind them. Remind them of what they already know. Remind them of what is basic Christianity 101. But we need ongoing, continual reminders as fallen, finite, self-centered sinners who are saved by grace. We need ongoing reminders all the time, even in the basics. And so that's what Titus, the pastor, was commissioned to do to these people, to remind them about how to be good citizens in the world as they interact and rub shoulders with unbelievers. And for Christians in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, There were many who were hostile to, who were people who were Christians, hostile to Christianity. The Roman government wasn't fond of Christianity. 
Roman government wanted its citizens to recognize Caesar as Lord. Whereas Christians would say, no, only Jesus is Lord. And that would get Christians in trouble. And then also the unbelieving Jews of the day hated Christianity and Jesus with a venomous passion. And that's why they killed Him. And they began and continued really to persecute the Christian church. And so as believers and being the minority living in a world with lost people everywhere, it would be easy to get discouraged and there would be a temptation to build up disdain in an, in an attitude as a Christian towards unbelievers, looking down your nose at unbelievers. Oh, they're pathetic. Boy, they are immoral. They are uh, disgusting. Wow, can you believe that? Uh, and that's easy for un, uh, Christians to do. And we, we have the same temptation. Once we get saved, we become Christians. We forget where we came from. We have a moral superiority. We've been saved. We know what's right. We want to live righteous. We want to please God. We're accepted in God's family. Uh, We commiserate and infiltrate and run around with unbelievers in a godless society. And we can easily look down our nose at unsaved governments and unsaved people who are in charge of our governments and the immorality that's everywhere. So it's, it's easy to become judgmental, condescending, arrogant, puffed up, as a Christian towards the unbelieving world and have a lot of disdain for the unbelieving world. And that's why this is a good check. Paul's saying, hey, now wait a minute. This world that you sometimes disdain, Christian, as you look down your nose, isn't this the same world where the Bible says God so loved the world? God so loved the sinful world that He gave His only begotten Son. The heart of love, the mercy, uh, the heart of God and the mercy of God is manifest towards unbelieving sinners. That's the heart we're supposed to have as Christians. So we've got to be reminded of that all, all the time. What is our attitude supposed to be towards the godless and the unsaved in society? It's really supposed to be the heart of Christ, which is one of brokenness, of sadness, of compassion, of desiring their salvation, of their, desiring them to hear the truth, uh, motivating us to evangelism, motivating us to prayer. That should be the heart of a Christian. And that's what Paul's saying in this passage. Remind them, uh, have the right attitude towards unbelievers in the world, even your pagan government officials who are warped and perverted. Have compassion towards them. Don't malign them. Be committed to good deeds toward them and blessing them. That was verses 1 and 2. Well, why? Why should we have an attitude of compassion and love and patience and mercy towards the unbelieving world? And the answer to the why is in verses 3 through 7. So let's go ahead and look at it. And it's really two points of emphasis. Christian, you should have the right attitude towards unbelievers because uh, you need to remember where you came from. You also once were lost. Think of the worst conceivable sinner who is lost and pagan on planet Earth today. And that could be your biography and my biography. Really. And that's Paul's argument. We also were, were like this. So we can identify with it. And we were no better than any other lost person, yet God in His grace chose to save us anyway. Isn't that amazing? And you know what? Every sinner out there is a candidate for the same loving, merciful grace of God to be poured out on them that they might be saved and changed and added to the family of God as well. So that's kind of the big picture theme. But he really expounds on the greatness of salvation. And so really that's what I want to highlight on in terms of what I want us to take away from this passage is just this, the glory of God's salvation in a very personal way in terms of how we perceive it and understand it 
and look at it from the lens of where we used to be before we got saved and where where we are now that we are saved and where we are headed by God's grace now that we have been saved. And if we maintain that perspective, that's going to help us interact with unbelievers in a proper way, knowing our place, where we were and where we've come from. And so I just tried to highlight it in four ways. And let's go ahead and look at this greatness of God's salvation. Uh, Point number one there is verse 3. And as a header there, I, I wrote in Titus 3, believers are called to live humble or humbly among unbelievers in view of our wicked past that God has graciously saved us from by His grace. That's our motive. And now we look at this specifics of this great salvation that God has accomplished. Point number one, the people of salvation. The people of salvation, the candidates of salvation. And I just put lost sinners. Lost sinners, that's what's in the world today. That's what we were before we got saved. Lost sinners. It's what the Bible's all about. It's not simplistic. It's the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the New Testament. It's the heart of Jesus, His mission, why He came. Why did Jesus come into the world? People have all kinds of crazy notions that cloud the truth. The simple, blessed, easy-to-understand truth is clouded so easily by false notions Why did Jesus come? He came for lost sinners. Luke 19.10 Jesus said it Himself. Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came. John 3.16 God so loved the world. He loved the sinful world. He loved sinners. God so loved that He gave. That Jesus came. That's the reason why Jesus came. Because God loved sinners. Wanted to save sinners. To seek and to save that which is lost, purpose statement. Mark 10.45, another purpose statement of why Jesus came into the world. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Why did He come 2,000 years ago? To serve, to be a servant, and to give up His life as a ransom for sinners. To die for sinners. Jesus came to die for sinners, to rescue sinners, to save sinners. He was on a rescue mission. It's really that simple. But many times people want to inject their own ideas of why they think Jesus came. So these are reasons Jesus did not come primarily that we hear frequently. Jesus did not come to be a do-gooder. He didn't come just to do good. He didn't come to be a moral example. That's not why He came. He didn't come to be a community organizer. We heard that uh, from Nancy Pelosi is what she said uh, seven years ago. He didn't come to lead a cause. He didn't come to eradicate poverty. He said that himself. He didn't come to eradicate starvation. Uh, He didn't come to be a vigilante. He didn't come for a political cause. He didn't come for a social cause. He didn't come to reconstruct society. He didn't come to be a philanthropist. He didn't come to be a social worker. But those are frequent things we hear. He came simply to seek and save sinners. And the people of salvation are lost sinners. The candidates for salvation are lost sinners. And Paul's point of emphasis, let's look at these lost sinners, who these candidates are, who are worthy of salvation. Here's how worthy they are inherently in terms of their nature and how they conduct themselves. Who are these candidates for salvation to be saved by the grace of God? Paul says in verse 3, well, uh, they were foolish, because that's what we used to be. Foolish literally means mindless. Walked around mindlessly, thoughtlessly. Unbelievers are foolish. We were foolish. Disobedient. That's primarily towards God. 
about our morality. We defy the law of God. We defy our conscience. We defy what we know is right. We actually relish in disobedience as an unbeliever, and that's how we used to be before we got saved. Unbelievers are deceived, that's spiritually speaking, blinded by Satan. That's the next word. That's their spiritual lot. A lot of unbelievers actually think they're very spiritual. Sometimes when you ask an unbeliever who's not a Christian, are you religious? No, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And they do. They've got some spirituality. Maybe they do some meditation. Maybe they have some building. They go worship and do their spiritual thing. Uh, but they don't realize they are deceived. Spiritually, they are deceived and they are blinded. How they're deceived is they are blinded by Satan himself. That's what Scripture says. Blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's how we were before we got saved. We were blinded by Satan. So add that to your autobiography in terms of your spiritual past. Uh, we used to be enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Slaves. Servants to our lusts, our illegitimate desires, and illegitimate pleasures. Uh, spending our life in malice and envy, that's our view towards other people. We are totally self-centered. Uh, we have malice towards other people. We have envy towards other people. We are not content with what we have. We want what they have. That's how we were on a regular, ongoing basis in terms of our nature before we became Christians. And then finally, the culmination. You can't get any worse than this. Hateful and hating one another. Hateful and hating one another. Uh, this is a good description of what it's like to be an unbeliever. Do you know that unbelievers don't realize that they are like this? Because your average unbeliever, if you ask them, they'll say, oh, I'm a good person. Uh, I hate to break the news to you. You're not really a good person. Let me tell you what you are. You are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy, and you are very hateful and you hate everybody. Then they would slap you. They'd say, well, I didn't say that. The Bible did. They'd slap you again. But that's God's diagnosis. He knows. He's the Creator. He knows all things. And that's a true diagnosis. This is what we would call, the theological term is total depravity because everything about humanity before it is regenerated and saved is corrupt and sinful and fallen and warped and perverted. Every area of life, every faculty that you have that composes your being, everything about you is subject to the curse of God and the fall of sin before you become a Christian. That is total depravity. You are so bad that you can't save yourself. That's total depravity. I was totally depraved before I got saved. This was me. Total depravity. Look at the verse again. Here's total depravity. Our thought life was under the subject of sin because that's what foolish means. Mindless. Your thinking capacity is condemned by sin. Disobedient. That's our moral life. Our ethical life. We don't obey. Deceived, that's our spiritual life, is subject to sin. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, that's our physical life, subject to sin. So no area is without uh, the curse and the influence of sin in our life. Spending our life in malice and envy, that's our social life and how we relate to other people. That also was corrupt. And then finally, hateful and hating one another, that's our emotional life. So that's our thought life, our moral life, our spiritual life, our physical life, our social life, our emotional life. That is total depravity. And that's what we used to be before we got saved. So we are no different than unbelievers out there today. And as a result, we've got to keep our attitude in check and not have disdain for the lost, but compassion and love for the lost, right? And even extend mercy towards them. So that's so how Paul starts that with remember who you were as you think about unbelievers today, the people of salvation, lost sinners. Let's go on to the second point he makes. 
terms of having a right attitude towards unbelievers in the world, you've got to remember who the provider of salvation is. And that's God the Savior. Who provided your salvation? We had nothing to do with it. We weren't saved because of how good we were. We were not saved because of any good deeds we did. We were not saved because of our lineage and who we were born to. We were not saved because of our gender, our skin color, our job, how much money we make. Nothing. Zero. Our human effort had absolutely zero to do with it. It was all about the provider. That's why we got saved. It was all God's doing. Everything about it is initiated by God. And that's his point really in verses 4 through 7. Everything that is true about salvation was initiated and started by God. Because if we're left to our own, we are like Adam and Eve when they first committed their sin. And what did they do? Oh God, please save us and forgive us. No. They turned and they ran. Tried to hide from God. And they're hiding in the bushes. Covering themselves with leaves. That's what humans do who are sinful. They run from God. They don't run to God. So if salvation is going to take place, it has to be God as the Savior initiating it. And everything in this passage from Three, actually four to seven, is God initiating salvation. It is all of Him, none of us. And that's a key point because in verses four to seven, this summary of salvation is from God's perspective. It is not from the human perspective. Because if you look closely, it's all about God. He, 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 He. And also everything He did. What He did. What He did. And why He did it. And why He did it. And how He accomplished it. And what His goal is. And also what you'll note in 4-7 to as it talks about the salvation plan of God is that there's nothing about what humans contribute to salvation here. There aren't any words like uh, repent, believe, faith, confess, respond, baptize, trust, obey. All those human factors and elements, they are not in this passage. Because that's not the point of emphasis. The point of emphasis is that God initiates salvation. God plans salvation. God accomplishes salvation from beginning to end. It is all for Him, all for His glory. And in the words of Jonah 2.9, I love it. It says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is of Yahweh. Beginning to end. It's all about Him. And so these Christians needed to hear that. As they were looking down their nose about how horrible and sinful society was, and Paul's saying, no, remember not only where you came from and how horrible you were as a sinner, but also remember how you got to where you are. You had nothing to do with it. It was all of God. He is the author of salvation. Well, that's a good uh, way to put us in check and keep a proper perspective, right? About viewing ourselves and viewing fellow sinful humanity and also view, viewing just the greatness of God. Verses 4 to 7. Look at 4 to 7. Here's testing your Bible study skills, your hermeneutical skills. Did you know in the Greek text, verses 4 to 7 is one sentence? Paul had a knack for that. I don't know who his English grammar school teacher was, but he did not care about run on sentences. He was a divinely inspired apostle. And if he wants to write a major 10 compound sentence and a run on sentence with 42 prepositional phrases, he's going to do it. And the Holy Spirit let him get away with it because verses 4 to 7 is one sentence in Greek. And whenever you're looking at a passage and you find one sentence, one of the main things you look for first is the main verb. So if I were to ask you, you're looking at your English Bible, what is the main verb in 4 through 7? Because that's what this passage is about. And you've got some uh, gerunds and some uh, other things that are being translated and they kind of look like verbs, but really those are just modifiers. So it's kind of a trick question. But the main verb of what this whole thing is about is the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. This passage, 4-7, to is all about God's salvation. Everything else defines that 
explicates that, explains that, illustrates that, highlights that. This is about God's great salvation that He accomplished on behalf of sinners. He saved us. He saved us. So that's the main verb. Also, regarding this great salvation, who is the Savior? Well, it's God. Look at verse 4. God our Savior. I believe that's referring to God the Father. This is consistent with the Old Testament. Yahweh is the Savior, Jonah 2.9. The book of Isaiah, all over the place, there's only one Savior, one God. That is Yahweh. And in the New Testament, that is also the Father. So the Father is the Savior. The Father accomplishes salvation. But not only is the Father Savior, the Holy Spirit is also involved in salvation. That's the end of verse 5. Salvation is accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indeed is the Savior as well. So the Father is the Savior. The Holy Spirit at the end of verse 5 is the Savior. And also verse 6 explicitly, Paul says that Christ our Savior. So who saves sinners? It's the triune God of the universe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they all have a part and they all complement one another beautifully and perfectly according to God's amazing saving plan. The Trinity. So look at verses 4 and 5. Just a couple of highlights there. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. But uh, the, conjun- the adversative conjunction there in the beginning of verse 4, that's a conjunction. You should be excited about that conjunction. You were lousy. I was lousy. You were a miserable, pathetic sinner. But God. But God. But God in His mercy. But God in His grace. We were worthless. We were not worthy. We couldn't earn anything. We deserved hell. We deserved condemnation. We deserved just. But God. But God. Isn't that great? That is not your lot. That is not your future. God in His grace. God in His love. God in His mercy. Reached out and saved sinners through Jesus Christ. What a great conjunction. And a great contrast. And a great reality and reminder. Sometimes if you, we all feel horrible and sinful at times. And you know what? That's true. We are horrible and sinful. <laughs> but God. But God. So when you're you know, kind of miring and drowning in your own depression as you assess yourself and how terrible you are, before you agree with that too much, you've got to say, but God, but God, in His grace, in His mercy, changed me, saved me, rescued me, all for His glory. That's the end of the story. That's the truth of the Gospel. That is the good news. But God, but the kindness of God and our Savior. And that kindness, when it came, that was uh, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago as He willingly he became the God-man, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, died on the cross, was punished for six hours by God the Father on the cross as God the Father poured out His infinite holy wrath on Jesus. Willingly, Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Father as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of sinners who deserved condemnation. Jesus absorbed their wrath. He took their place. And then Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead to pronounce Victory on behalf of sinners of anyone who would believe in Him as a substitutionary Savior. That's what verse 4 is referring about. When did God accomplish this? He accomplished it with the coming of Jesus Christ and He continues to accomplish it ever since then. Salvation is happening always and continually because God is a living God. Jesus reigns in heaven as Savior. The provider of salvation is our great God and Savior. Verse 5, he goes on and he says, He saved us. It's not I'm working on my salvation. That's what I was taught for all the years growing up for 19 years. That I wasn't saved yet. I'm working on my salvation. As a matter of fact, I was told you can't know in this life if you have salvation. Whereas the Bible says, yeah, you can know that for sure, definitively. 
a historical reality. That's why it says in the past tense, He saved us. That's when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did on my behalf as a sinner. And when I believe that and ask Him to save me from my sin, instantaneously He saves the sinner in that very moment. And they are adopted into the family of God and held secure for all eternity in Christ's saving hand. And Jesus said, no one can snatch them from my hand in the Gospel of John. And we can say, He saved us. Amen. And salvation is eternal. But that's the the general generic umbrella term there. He saved us. That's the great reality. And then the salvation and the nature of salvation is defined in so many different ways in these three verses. Salvation is defined as forgiveness. In uh, If you look at verse uh, 5 where it says, by the washing of regenerate Washing, that word just means the forgiveness. So with salvation comes forgiveness of sin. Past, present, and future. All of your sins have been forgiven. That's washing. Regeneration, that's where the word Genesis comes from. We were recreated. We were, we were, we were dead, spiritually speaking, and we were brought to life by God the moment we became a Christian. So that speaks of new life, being born again, if you will. That's under the purview of salvation. What else happens at salvation? We are washed, forgiven of all our sin. We are regenerated or made alive, and we are renewed in the Holy Spirit. We're, we're made new. We're given a new nature at the moment of salvation. That's renewing. That's what it means. A new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That comes with salvation as well. What else comes with salvation? Uh, the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, or no, verse 6, He poured out the Holy Spirit richly on every believer. The Holy Spirit. The moment you became a Christian, the Spirit of God took up residence you, in you, and lives in you until Jesus returns or until you die and go to heaven. The Holy Spirit is always with the Christian, living literally inside of you. Every Christian is dwelt with the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. So that is the work of salvation. And then uh, one more thing regarding salvation. Look at verse 7. So that being justified. Here's another synonym for salvation. Justified. If you're a Christian, you're saved. If you're saved, you're justified. What is justification? It's a legal term. It's a supernatural act. It's an invisible act. It's a one-time act. It's an act initiated by God as judge. As judge, He's looking down at you and at me as guilty sinners worthy of the punishment of death and hell. But God in His grace, because of the work of Jesus Christ, as the judge looks down on the sinner who is repentant and believes in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and in the courtroom of God, God as the judge pronounces the sinner not guilty. Isn't that amazing? So justification is a legal term and it is a legal pronouncement. The equivalent of when a minister or somebody does a wedding and you've got the bride and the groom there, and you make a legal pronouncement. I now pronounce you man and wife. Poof! Isn't that amazing? Nothing happened on the outside? Well, maybe the bride got warm fuzzies, but nothing else happened on the outside. It was simply a legal pronouncement. And in a moment of time, they go from being a couple who is not married to now they are literally, legally married. And before God, they are spiritually one. That is a legal declaration. You are now one, as the minister pronounces. And that is exactly what God the Father does when we believe. He looked down from heaven and he said, not guilty. That is justification. A legal declaration. And not only not guilty, but get this. You are innocent. Wow. Human courts can't accomplish that. But God can, God did. Because when you become a Christian, not only are your sins forgiven, you're also given the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ to cover you. And that becomes literally your identity. So today, Christian, if you're feeling depressed, down in the dumps, oh, woe is me. Keep this truth in mind regarding justification. Because you've been saved, you have been justified. Which means God the Father looks down right now on you as a child of God and He doesn't see you and all your yuckiness. He sees Jesus Christ in His glory. Now, that's something to get excited about, isn't it? Amen. And that's, that's a reality. That's our status. And that is the great God who is our Savior, the great provider of salvation. So the people of salvation, us, lost sinners. The provider of salvation, God the Savior. Let's go on to the next point there. And that's the process of salvation. It is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. It was great having uh, Pam and Paige do their little commercial on evangelism in the mall. I've had opportunity to do that at different times. I remember when I was a youth pastor... uh, a while back, I think it was in Texas, I took some of the willing uh, teenagers out to, we'd go to like Safeway parking lot with our video camera and videotape uh, people in these conversations as they're going into Safeway and coming out and just real basic questions. Uh, are you, do you believe in God? Are you a Christian? Um, are you a good person? Are you going to go to hell? Are you going to go to, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Uh, are you going to go to heaven? And so, at least maybe this is just Texas, but probably 99% of the people we talked to, uh, we determined they they weren't believers, but they did believe in heaven and hell, and they thought they were going to heaven. I mean, it's just consistent, like clockwork. Yes, I'm a uh, yes, I believe heaven and hell. Yes, I believe I'm probably going to heaven. And then the follow-up question always was, well, why do you think you're going to heaven? And we got the same answer every time: because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. That was the number one answer, by far. Because of the good things I do. My, my goody pile is, at this point in my life, higher than my baddie pile. And when I stand before Jesus the judge, He's going to like my goody pile, because it's taller. And therefore, I deserve to get in. Now, this is universal. This is basic to humanity. This is inherent in our nature to want to earn salvation, to earn favor with God, to earn forgiveness, to earn our way into heaven. It is universal. It, it's in us as prideful, self-centered sinners. And it's called works righteousness. Every religion it's true of. Every philosophy of the world it is true of. We're going to earn our way up God's ladder by our own bootstraps and our own good efforts and how many old ladies I walk across the street in the duration of my lifetime. Works righteousness. And the Bible's way of salvation is the very antithesis of that. And Christianity is totally unique because it's different from every other philosophy and religion of the world because the Bible condemns the idea of works righteousness that you can save yourself by your good works. Cannot be done. We are totally depraved and totally unable. And God is the Savior. He's the one that initiates salvation. And He's the one that He only has the He's the only one that has the only legitimate plan of salvation. His plan, His process, it's all His doing. So the main point here that Paul's highlighting here, and this was also a parallel truth that he talked about in Ephesians, human beings cannot save themselves by any good works whatsoever, by obedience to the law. It is impossible. Salvation is only of God and His work. It is all of Jesus' work, none of mine. Jesus' work of His perfect life and His willing substitutionary death on the cross and His resurrection and ascension. That is the work that saves. All of God, none of me. 
And that's his point here. He saved us, verse 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Our good works are not going to save us. We can't boast of anything that we've done. Rather, salvation that God accomplished, middle of verse 5, is according to all these things that God did and all these things that God is. That's how people are saved. That's how sinners are saved. Salvation is according to... Look at all these things. Salvation is according to verse 4, His kindness. His kindness. Verse 4, that means God wanted to do good to humanity and to His creation. Salvation is also according to His love. Verse 4, that's not agape or agape, uh, the typical word of agape of love. This is uh, philanthropia. Phileo. That, that's God's love towards helpless humanity. So that's what salvation is. It's according to God's kindness, God's love, uh, God's initiative. Middle of verse 5, God's mercy. Uh, verse 7, it's according to God's grace. It's all of God. It is all of Him. Those are two beautiful terms. Those are two terms that are the same, uh, different sides of the same coin. God's grace and His mercy. Mer- what is mercy? Mercy is when God doesn't punish us with the punishment we deserve. Grace is when He blesses us with the blessings we don't deserve. So it's positive and negative. It's a beautiful compliment to one another. And that's what God did to us when He saved us. Because of His grace and because of His mercy. He held back His wrath that we deserved. And He blessed us with the righteousness of Christ that we can't earn. That's salvation from God's part. And that is the process of salvation from beginning to end. It is initiated by God and accomplished all of Him according to His kindness, His love, His grace, His mercy, His timing, and His provision, and then finally His goal in salvation, which takes us to point number four. So after the process of salvation, which is by grace through faith, the purpose of salvation. It be interesting to take a survey right now. Okay, everybody on your white card, answer the following question. Why did God save you? That would be fun. Because we'd get a variety of answers. Some that would contradict each other. Why did God save you? Well, that's verse 7 here. The purpose of salvation, that we might be heirs of eternal life. Why did God save me? Actually, if you read the New Testament, there are several reasons stated why God saved us. The spiritual answer, if you want to be really spiritual, for His glory. Yeah, huh? what does that mean? Yeah, it's the right answer. It's for His glory, but I'm talking about specific. And there are specific examples delineated in Scripture. There are, there are several reasons why God saved us. And one of those, a beautiful one and a very personal one, is very relevant and applicable to us to help us is in verse 7 here. Here's why God saved us. Here's why He did all these glorious, wonderful things rescuing us from the pit. The purpose of salvation that we might be heirs of eternal life. And there's kind of three points of emphasis here of why God saved us. And they all... Uh, intertwine and complement and intermediate. And you can't separate one from the other, but God saved us or He justified us by His grace so that, beginning of verse 7, in order that, so that means in order that, for the purpose of, so that God might accomplish the following. This is why you got saved. Well, why did I get saved? Well, here's why. For the purpose of, there's three. So that we might be heirs. H-E-I-R-S. Middle of verse 7. Heirs, to be an heir of someone can be a good thing. To be an heir of someone can be a bad thing. 
it depends on the character of the person that you're an heir of, right? You might be an heir of somebody who's just a lousy, no good person, and when they die, they didn't leave you anything. Um, or you could be an heir of someone who's wonderful in their character and they left you many blessings when they died and you inherited that. But being an heir speaks of what you're going to inherit in the future and what has uh, rightfully been delegated and given to you that you are going to secure fully in the future. And so God saved us in this life. He began uh, the process of ultimate salvation. We are saved from our sins in this life, but all of salvation hasn't been accomplished yet in terms of practical applications for us. Our, our body is going to be redeemed and glorified, so we still have that. That's something we're looking forward to. Being an heir means something you're going to receive in the future. One of the things that we are going to receive in the future as heirs of Christ is a resurrection body just like Jesus' resurrection body. That is amazing. That is cool in the vernacular of a teenager. Heirs. Wonderful, amazing, supernatural blessings that we are going to receive from God in the future. In addition to the forgiveness of sin we already have, and the not guilty status that God has given us through justification. All the promises yet to be received in the future, in heaven. So why were we saved? We were saved that we might become heirs of God, children of God, that we might be with Him for all eternity in heaven, sharing His blessings, reigning with Him. We have a future. Why, why be depressed about the life now when in light of the fact of your future, which is eternal? This life is just a puff of smoke and gone, Scripture tells us. Like grass that withers, and yet we have an eternity where we are going to be heirs of the Creator of the universe. Absolutely amazing. That is why God saved me. God saved me that I might be an heir of His and inherit all of His blessings. What a day that will be. Another thing that He saved us for, and this is related to being an heir, He says that we might be made heirs according to hope that we might have hope. God saves us in this lifetime initially. One of the reasons is that we might have hope for the rest of the time we're here on earth as we live looking towards the future. Of all people in the world, Christians should have hope in this life. If you are not a Christian, you should not have hope. That's a, I, I was amazed. I was thinking this week and meditating on that, thinking, man, I know that the first 19 years of my life was really pretty miserable because I didn't know God. I just didn't know I was miserable. And now I know people in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s and their 80s that I personally know who are not Christians. How in the world have they survived living in this fallen, miserable world without knowing God and Jesus Christ personally? I don't know how they pulled that off. Because I know I don't know if I could. Because my only hope is in Christ and that I know Him personally. And there are some people who can't pull it off not knowing Christ. And that's why they resort to things like alcohol and drugs and stimulants and to numb their thoughts and numb their feelings because they don't have hope and they know it. Or maybe they end their life prematurely, commit suicide. Someone who commits suicide has run out of hope. And yet the Christian got saved that we might have true hope. And our hope is in Christ. That's an amazing thing, that we might be heirs, that we would have hope. And by the way, hope in the Bible has everything to do with in God based on His character and already promises that He has made and also based on His past actions that He's already accomplished. If you put your hope in another man, that's, that's depressing. We don't put our hope in people. But we can put our hope in God because of who He is and what He's already accomplished on our behalf and He's going to be true to every single one of His problems, uh, promises. So uh, we have hope. We were saved to be heirs. We were saved to have hope. And then finally, 
It is the hope of eternal life. We were saved now that we might inherit eternal life in the future. Actually, you get eternal life the moment you believe. Eternal life really is a not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life. But there is a quantity to eternal life. And that is the idea that we overcome death, the second death, and we live forever and ever and ever with God in heaven. And so actually, one of the things I put down there is that we were saved that we might inherit heaven, the hope of heaven. Because that's really what he's talking about. So you've got the three H's there. Why were we saved? Because of our hair, that we might be heirs, hope, and heaven. Or, I'm sorry, heirs. H, H, H. So this is good news. This is encouraging news, especially if you know Jesus Christ. This should give you hope for the day and hope for the week. Till the next Lord's Day when we can gather again and we continue in looking at God's goodness. With that, let's go ahead and go to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God who has accomplished an amazing great salvation for us. Father, we do thank You for our time together. We thank You for what the realities of this passage that remind us of Your kindness, of Your love, Your mercy, Your grace extended toward sinners who did not deserve Your goodness. God, we thank You for that. We worship You for that. God, fill our hearts with joy. Swallow depression negative thinking, self-condemnation, and the realities of these blessed truths that are the realities that You have given to every true child of God. Father, also I pray that You would remind us appropriately so of where we've come from, how we were sinful. And God, use that to motivate us to view a lost world in a proper manner with compassion, with patience, with prayer, with mercy, with the desire and the actual action of going out, sharing the Gospel, planting seeds of the Gospel, having a true, legitimate compassion for the lost. And God, help us to start in our immediate family, in our immediate neighborhood, in our immediate vicinity of where we work or where we go to school, with our relatives, which can be so difficult. Help us to not be callous, Father. We need Your help. We need You to soften our hearts with Your Holy Spirit to that end. And we do pray it all for Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.